Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. All right. Has anybody ever been to any of the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, D.C.? Anyone ever been there? Maybe sixth grade field trip. Uh, anyone ever been to this, the Smithsonian Museum of American History? That one in particular. All right, some of you. Now, if you walk around the Smithsonian Museum of American History, there's a lot of things there that are intriguing. But um, yet one, at somewhere in there, you'll notice a particularly strange oddity. You'll see something that looks a little bit like a Bible, but it looks as if it's been cut and pasted together by somebody. That is popularly known as the Jefferson Bible. And it's a Bible that uh, he called, because in 1820, he took a razor blade to the Gospels and cut out any of the non, or any non-miraculous things and made his own Bible out of them. He was uncomfortable with the miraculous parts of the Gospels. And in particular, he was uncomfortable with some of the, the harder and more divine teachings of Jesus. And so he cut those out and he created his own Bible, now known as the Jefferson Bible. He called it the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you go on the Smithsonian's website, you can actually see all the pages of it. And this is the last page where um, he has four different languages all put together. And this is actually from the last page of the Jefferson Bible. And there's, if you'll notice, you can't really see it there, but if you notice, here's the last verse in the Jefferson Bible. It says this, it says, there they laid Jesus and rolled a stone to the door of the sepulcher, or tomb, he's from the King James Version here, of the sepulcher, and then they dispersed. That's the end of the Jefferson Gospel. He ends there, and you'll notice that there's something missing from the end of that story. The thing we've been talking about, the thing we just sang about, the resurrection is just cut out. It didn't make it into the Jefferson Bible. It was edited out because he took a razor blade to anything that appeared slightly miraculous. And I'd like to say that he was the only one to do something like this. But perhaps he was the only one to do this as intentionally as this. Where I think a lot of us, while he did this physically, over the past 300 to 400 years, a lot of us have begun to do this mentally. Where when we see something miraculous in the scriptures, or we see something that's hard to swallow, we find ourselves cut and pay, cut, ra- taking a razor blade to it and cutting it out in our minds. And leaving only the Bible that we're okay with. And in particular, over the past couple hundred years, the resurrection has been one of those things that's held a lot of people up where they found themselves more and more uh, uh, prone to uh, not be able to swallow the idea of a resurrection. But the question for us this morning is, is if you cut the resurrection out of the scriptures, if you take a razor blade to your Bible in your pew right now, and you cut out all the accounts of the resurrection and all the references to it in the New Testament and in Paul's letters, would you have anything that, that is a coherent Christianity whatsoever? Could you have a Christianity without a resurrection? Or ultimately... Does it begin to crumble and fall apart? This morning, we're going to consider that question in week two of our series called What Happens When We Die? Um, If you missed week one, you can catch it online, but we're in week two of What Happens When We Die? And what we're doing is we're dealing with death, resurrection, and our other questions about death, resurrection, and everything in between. We're not talking so much about what comes after resurrection, heaven, hell, judgment, and those sorts of things. We're focusing specifically on what does the Bible say about Christ's resurrection, and what does that have to do with our own resurrections as well? And we have this sort of phrase that we're going to be coming back to a lot, which is this, is that what happens when you die has everything to do with what happens when Christ died. 
And in fact, we just sang about that. We talked about how we're going to be walking out of the grave. And the reason we can say that with confidence is because we believe that Christ did the same. But if we don't believe that we're going to be walking out of the grave, if we don't believe that Christ did, that ultimately that's going to shape what we believe will happen, uh, what we think will happen, what we believe will happen when we die. And this week we're going to take that a step further as well. We're going to talk about why what you believe happens when you die and what you believe happened when Christ died has, has everything to do with not just with each other, but with what you believe about going to church, what you believe about reading your Bible, what you believe about the nature of forgiveness, what you believe about Christian funerals, and how you respond to haters, whether online or in real life. All of those things have everything to do with what you believe happens when you die. Why don't you grab a Bible this morning and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. Again, in this series, Paul is, we're going through not just anything the Bible says about what happens when you die, but we're talking specifically about 1 Corinthians 15, which is a 58-verse argument that the Apostle Paul, one of the, one of the first earliest church planners and missionaries of Jesus, wrote to deal with these sort of questions about death and resurrection. And there's these 58 verses where he makes an argument for it. And he starts in verses 1 through 11 by reminding them and rehearsing with them the gospel that they've already claimed to believe. He reminds them that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead, and they've already claimed to believe that. We talked a little bit about that last week. But this week, he begins to take it a step further and to consider what would happen if Christ really hasn't been raised from the dead. Now, I want you to just keep your Bibles open on your laps this morning. We're going to read it as we go, but let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you for gathering us here this morning. We know that none of us are here by accident. Some of us have come in here for a variety of reasons. But Lord, we know that when we open the word of God, you have something to say to us. You have a fresh word for us today, something that you want to speak to anyone who has walked in here this morning, no matter where we're coming from. We know, Lord, that when we open up the word of God, you, Jesus, the true word of God, meet us here. And you have something to speak. Open up our hearts to hear what you have to say. Help us to long to hear a word from you this morning and to hold on to what we hear as we leave this place. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're starting in verse 12. And again, Paul is picking up an argument here where in verses 1 through 11, he has made a, he's just kind of reminded them of the gospel. He said, okay, Jesus, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again, and Jesus appeared to a bunch of people. And I'm reminding you of this because this has everything to do with what you believe happens when you die. Because in verse 12, he gets to the heart of the problem in Corinth. And here's what he says. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because again, this is what they were saying in Corinth. They were saying that bodies don't come back to life. But we believe Jesus is dead. But the rest of us, not going to happen. And then in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if that's what you believe, he says this, then not even Christ has been raised. There's some kind of connection that Paul is making to say that in order for you to be consistent and coherent in what you believe, you have to either believe that Christ was raised from the dead and you will be raised from the dead, or you have to believe that you will not be raised from the dead and also Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Here's another way that we could put it for us this morning, is that certain beliefs are a little bit like theological dominoes, the resurrection being one of those. And you can't tip one without tipping every other belief within range. And again, what you believe happens when you die happens to be one of those dominoes. And that's what Paul's trying to get at in this little nuanced, slightly confusing way here. 
Now think about how dominoes work. Most people, does anybody actually know how to play the game of dominoes? Anyone know how to play? Okay, some of you do. Anyone not know how to play the game of dominoes? Okay, great. That means you probably just know how to tip dominoes, which is fine, um, because that's really what dominoes became good for in the world. And so dominoes, the way they work, right, if you put a bunch next to each other and you tip them over, and if there's a domino nearby and it hasn't already been shaken because one of your siblings is trying to shake the floor for you, um, if you knock it over, any domino that's within range of that domino is also going to fall on a sort of chain reaction. And you can search, I, I was searching YouTube videos as research uh, of people uh, d- knocking over dominoes. And there are some amazing YouTube videos. I encourage you, not right now, afterward, to go find some of those videos about this. But you guys know how dominoes work. But I want us to take a second. I want us to set aside theological dominoes for a second. And I just want to consider just a few beliefs from everyday life and how they also are dominoes, where you can't hold one belief and you can't hold this other belief at the same time. For example, if you believe in the law of gravity, you can't also believe that you won't get hurt if you jump out of a second-story dormitory window into a pile of leaves. If that feels oddly specific, it is. (laughs) If you believe one, you can't believe the other. Um, You have to either believe that gravity doesn't exist, so I won't get hurt, or gravity does exist, and I will get hurt by jumping out of this window. They're dominoes. Or, for example, maybe one from your life, maybe last night, if you believe that a 450-degree oven will heat up a frozen pizza... You can't also believe that if you take a a bite five seconds later, it won't burn your mouth and you'll regret it for days. Some of you still can't taste things from pizza you ate last night. Again, there's these inconsistent beliefs. You can't have those two things together. If you believe ovens work, you can't also believe that you can have a bite of pizza five seconds later. You have to believe all or nothing when it comes to those things. Or, for example, if you believe that an object in motion tends to stay in motion, you can't jump out of a golf cart going 15 miles per hour and hope that you won't eat dirt. Um, if that feels oddly specific, you can talk to Mark Sherudo about that at some point. Because <laughs> again, they're dominoes. They go together. If you believe one, you have to believe the other as well. If you believe objects in motion tend to stay in motion, you will stay in the golf cart because you know that if you jump out, that you will not be able to keep up all of a sudden. And so in Corinth, they had some of these beliefs that were dominoes, where they didn't see how these two things went together. In Corinth, they were believing that it was impossible for bodies to rise from the dead. They believed that you're, you know, we've talked a little bit about this last week, and I encourage you to listen to that sermon if you missed it. But they talked a little bit, or we talked a little bit about how they thought the spirit was inherently good, and your body or your flesh was inherently evil or bad. So therefore, when you died, if there was going to be any resurrection, it wasn't going to be with your body. It was just going to be your spirit evaporating kind of out there, and that's it. But at the same time, they believed that Jesus got up and walked out of his grave, but they didn't believe that that same thing would happen for us. But Paul is saying that you can't believe this and that at the same time. So some of you are wondering what these are. I took these from the preschool. I like to borrow illustrations from our preschool all the time. So for example, if you believe that your resurrection, or if you don't believe that you will be raised from the dead, Paul also says you can't believe that Christ will be raised from the dead either. That these two things are theological dominoes. So if you knock one over, God, that worked. The other one knocks over as well. And you can't end up having both. But if you believe that you will be raised from the dead, you also have to believe that Christ will be raised from the dead. And he also goes the other way around. He says, if you can't believe this, you also can't believe this. And they fall over again, right? This isn't, this isn't too shocking how dominoes work. But he says these two things go together. That if you believe one, you end up having to believe the other as well. That you can't believe that you won't be raised from the dead, but somehow that Christ was raised from the dead. And you can't believe that Christ wasn't raised from the dead and somehow believe that you will be. Those two things are one and the same in a sense, and they go 
together. And when faced with these sort of incompatible beliefs, where we believe maybe one thing, but we don't believe something else, but those two things go together, there are sort of two options for what we can do. We can either ignore our incompatible beliefs, or we can change one of them. There are two options for how you can deal with when you have beliefs that don't hang together well. And the first one is one that we tend to do the most. We tend to just ignore. And we have all kinds of beliefs, not just about resurrection, but all kinds of incompatible beliefs. Because a lot of us have grown up in a culture where church isn't the default. And lots of little beliefs have sort of filtered their way into our lives. We don't realize that often we're holding beliefs that don't hold together very well. There's a book called Disruptive Witness. And in the book, Alan Noble talks about that we are particularly good at ignoring incompatible beliefs in our cultural moment. And one of the reasons is that we never take time to reflect on what we actually believe. It's one of the reasons we're going to teach a beliefs course all summer, to begin to think about what do we actually believe as Christians. So we never take the time to see that actually two beliefs that we hold don't work together, that they're incompatible with one another. We rarely reflect or think about what we actually believe because it's hard and it takes time. As I talked about last week, there's always another episode of The Good Place or Marie Kondo to watch, and we don't have time to think about our beliefs. There's ways to distract ourselves. And so he writes this in the book. He says, Our tendency then is to form a hodgepodge of beliefs about the world. Beliefs that would be seen as incoherent if we were to look closely at them and their implications, but we don't. Or at least we try not to. Many of us have never sat down to think deeply about what we believe about a variety of things and to see if those things actually can go together or if they tip each other over. The other option then is to change one of our beliefs. Either you ignore your incompatible beliefs, which doesn't work for long because eventually you run into reality, that's what Dallas Bullard says, or you change one. You make a decision about which one of the beliefs you're going to hold and which one you're going to change as an implication of the other one, which is exactly what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians and us to do right here. He's saying you guys have some incompatible beliefs. And so he's trying to help them realize the incompatibility of their beliefs and move them from ignoring that incompatibility to actually changing one of those beliefs to be more consistent. And in order to do that, he wants to show them just what happens when you don't believe that anything happens when you die. He says that not only does that mean you can't also believe that Christ didn't raise from the dead, he's going to give us five other dominoes that actually begin to fall when we begin to let go of our resurrection or of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so in the next, basically in this next section, Paul opens with this line and he says this, and he says, if Christ has not been raised, and from here, he begins to imagine a world without Easter. He begins to see what would happen if really Easter did not happen. What would that mean for our day-to-day lives? What would that mean for our afterlives? And depending on how you count, he says here that there are five other dominoes that begin to fall along with our Christ's resurrection. And so if Christ has been raised, there are five things that that means for us, according to this passage. The first thing it means is that you can quit going to church. So the, because the next domino that falls, he says, is Church. Church doesn't make it much longer after we stop believing in Christ's resurrection or in our resurrection from the dead. All the sermons you hear and any faith you feel in response to those sermons is all a waste of time. If you're already getting depressed, get ready because we have five more dominoes to go. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, he says, Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. What I'm doing up here right now is a waste of time. 
It is a less interesting TED Talk that you have arrived at every Sunday for years for no good reason. I am nothing more than a motivational speaker that, that pretends that there's some sort of theological grounding to what I do. And your faith, if you have been so foolish as to respond in any sense in your heart to what you felt, it's nothing more than sort of an emotional high without any spiritual gravity. Our faith is useless, and so our, our preaching is useless, and so is, is your faith. He says you might as well start sleeping in on Sunday like everyone else. You can finally get that two-day weekend you've always dreamed and always been jealous that your friends have. You might as well put all your kids on traveling teams that play sports on Sundays because it doesn't matter anymore. Um, That's a much better um, idea for their future than possibly investing in their, their discipleship. You might as well take long weekends away every weekend for the entire summer and forget church. Have church in the woods if that helps, because none of this matters anymore. You might as well unsubscribe from all those sermon podcasts you listen to, including Bellevue Christian Church, obviously, because all of you subscribe to that. You would have to unsubscribe from all of that because it's a waste of your time, and you're better off living, listening to NPR podcasts, which are also great. But you're, you, you lose all of this. None of this matters anymore. It's all a waste of time. In fact, I'm, if you don't believe in it, I'm giving you back 75 hours a year. Minimum. If you make it to every church service this year, that's about 75 hours worth of church. And that doesn't include meetings. It doesn't include discipleship communities. That doesn't include all the service that you do to our church. It doesn't include all the hours you spend thinking about our church. I don't know if you spend hours thinking about our church. It doesn't include all of that stuff anymore. All of that is just a waste of time. Some of you are like, this sounds very appetizing, Austin. <laughs> I think I'm moving on. Um, that's not the effect. Hold, stay with me. Stay with me here. Um, but that's 75 hours you're getting back because our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But not only can you quit going to church, you can also throw your Bible in the garbage because that's a waste of time as well. It really has nothing to speak into your life anymore because all its gospels accounts and all of its letters are nothing more than well-crafted lies. Listen to how Paul, one of the main writers of the New Testament, talks about this. He says, more than that, We are then found to be false witnesses. And the Bible is meant to be a witness to Jesus Christ from the old and to the new. Um, We are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. Then he returns back to kind of his initial argument, his little summary phrase. But he, he did not raise him from the dead if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Again, these two dominoes are connected, but now he's connecting them to other ones as well. He's saying that your Bible is a waste of time. Every book of the New Testament witness is based on the premise that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't read the Bible without over and over seeing this fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And if it's just pretend, if it's made up, if it didn't actually happen, no matter how sincerely it's believed, nothing else really matters that the Bible says. Because it's all based on a lie. It's all pretend. As Neil deGrasse Tyson, the sort of pop astronomer who loves to appear on late night shows, once said in a Reddit feed in 2011, he listed out, somebody asked him, what are, the, what are the books that every intelligent person should read? And the first one that Neil deGrasse Tyson said was the Bible. And the reason he said, the reason he said though, is so that you can learn to think for yourself. And he's right. If in fact, this is all just a lie. There are better things we could spend our times reading. You can quit waking up early in the morning to read the Bible if that's the kind of thing you do. You can quit putting up posts on Instagram from She Reads Truth or whatever other beautiful calligraphy Bible verses you get. You can quit getting daily notifications from version if you get those to keep reading your Bible and to keep up your streak. 
Um, you can quit trying to read through the Bible in a year if Leviticus didn't already kill that plan for you, because it probably did, along with lots of sheep. That was a great joke. Um, you can quit reading books uh, that quote the Bible or reference something in the Bible, because those are all made up too. And you might as well find a way to cover up all of your Bible verse tattoos, because that was a poor life decision. Um, may I suggest a Tasmanian devil? I'm sorry if some of you have him. Um, the third thing then is this. You can find an animal to sacrifice. Some of you are like protecting your ducks. <laughs> Duelist is over here. Um, there's, because you're going to have to find some other way to atone for your sins. right? But unless you just get rid of sins altogether, which is another option. Because the next thing to fall is the forgiveness domino. This thing doesn't survive long either if resurrection goes away. We lose forgiveness as well. Your sins aren't forgiven and you're still guilty. Here's what Paul says. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He says your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus is still in the grave, what Paul is saying is that the cross didn't work. It didn't accomplish anything. Just a guy, he was misled, messed up. Exactly what the book Zealot by Riza Aslan thinks. Just somebody, a, a failed revolutionary. He didn't do anything worthwhile. He didn't get your sins forgiven. That was pretend. It was a waste of time. He was wrong. He was a failed leader and a failed Messiah. It means that any relief you felt when you confessed your sins to Jesus for the first time, maybe in this room where maybe you raised your hand in response to a sermon and made a commitment and you felt this relief and this burden lifted from you, that was just pretend. That didn't matter. That wasn't real. It means that the joy you experienced when you stepped out of the baptistry and the smiles on the faces of pictures that we've taken after baptisms are all just pretend. It was an emotional high. It was nothing real. Nothing spiritual was happening there. It means that if you want to experience any sense of forgiveness, the answer is to go back to the book of Leviticus, which killed your Bible reading plan. You got to go back to it now. You need to read it and follow it like a manual because that's now how you get forgiveness. You have to go back and begin to sacrifice animals again. You have to go back into a system that's very intense and very difficult to follow and one that has to be repeated year after year after year after year, like Hebrew says. And then in the end, it's all going to be for nothing because those sacrifices were actually a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice. And the only reason those sacrifices meant anything is because Christ would ultimately be sacrificed on our behalf. So ultimately that loses its meaning as well and you're stuck and you don't even have a way to atone for your sins. So now you've got to find a way to get rid of your guilt in some other way. Because what Jesus, if what Jesus did on the cross didn't work, then neither did any of those animal sacrifices. And you can, read, you can read Hebrews for that. The next thing is that you can lose all hope at your next Christian funeral. You can lose all hope at your next fin- Christian funeral. Because the hope domino falls as well. In the end, everyone who ever died, including so-called believers, is just going to rot in the ground for eternity. Here's what Paul says. He says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, which is a Christian way of talking about death, are, are lost. Who knows where they are? We're not sure anymore. We've lost all confidence in that. Any celebrations of life you've ever attended are just a joke. It's not real. It's not important. Any hope or consolation a pastor has offered you in a sermon at a funeral is just meaningless cliches. It doesn't matter. It doesn't help you. You're holding on to nothing. Any thoughts about seeing that person in heaven someday are just fanciful wish dreams to make us feel better, not grounded in reality. 
they do nothing for us if Christ has in fact not been raised. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul said this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. My dad once did a funeral where he read that verse, but he misread it, and he said this. He says that, uh, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no pope. Um, <laughs> that brought some humor to the funeral um, and to this moment because we're getting pretty depressed in here. But again, the reality is Paul was wrong if, if, uh, if in fact, the dead are not raised, if, in fact, Christ was not raised from the dead. We'll never see that person again, so we might as well grieve anymore and get rid of any coping mechanisms that we have for dealing with it. We can lose all hope. The fifth thing then is this, is that we can listen to the haters or the trolls. I thought about putting trolls there, but you can listen to the haters because in the end, they're right and you should thank them because they're just trying to save you from a foolish faith and from wasting the rest of your life believing something that isn't true because now we're just gullible people who believe in utter nonsense. Listen again to the end of this. It says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. In other words, if Christianity is just good for now, uh, we, are all, we, are, we are of all people most to be pitied. When, for example, people like Christopher Hitchens, who is one of the sort of new atheists that was popular a few years back, and others from the new atheist camp, when they say that religion poison, poisons everything and that there's, they adds nothing good to the world, they're right. They're correct. We should all be reading those books. It means that those social media friends and followers, and I say friends, friends and followers of you who troll you every time you post anything about Christianity— um, about your faith. In fact, they're right, and you should thank them, and you should send them a direct message and say, thank you for trolling me. It has converted me. You are right. I am, of all people, most to be pitied um, because they're correct. And so again, in the end, if we don't believe in the resurrection, a lot of dominoes begin to fall. You can quit going to church. You can throw your Bible in the garbage. You can start finding the animal to sacrifice. You can lose all hope at your next Christian funeral, and you can begin to listen to the haters. Because as one commentary says, in the end, if the resurrection didn't happen, Christians become pathetic dupes taken in by a colossal fraud, and their transformation and glorious spiritual experiences in this life are all make-believe. Which is worth noting is what most people think Christianity is in the first place. So, anyone feeling depressed? Anyone there? That means it's working. (laughs) Uh, When we let go of the possibility of our resurrection— when we let go of the possibility of our resurrection, that our bodies will be resurrected, we also have to let go of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we let go of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we also have to let go of this one, which was, what does it say? Church, going to church. We also have to let go of our Bibles. We also have to start looking, let go of forgiveness and look for something to sacrifice. We also have to let go of hope at our next Christian funeral. And we also have to let go of any confidence we have in the face of persecution or where people around the world who are persecuted or us who might be hated upon verbally in a variety of different ways. Because again, certain beliefs are like theological dominoes. And you can't tip one without tipping every belief within range. You can't tip the resurrection without tipping all the other ones as well. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. We're not going to stop there. We're going to keep going. We got more to go. We got more to go. I thought about stopping there. I thought about, we're just going to end there. We're going to keep a lot of suspense because the reality is Paul begins to answer that in the next paragraph. He begins to say, okay, but if Christ has been raised, but I want us now to consider though, what if he has been raised? What does that mean for those other five things? What if in fact this isn't made up? 
but this is the truest thing that has ever happened. What if God really did intervene in history and raise a person from the dead, never to die again, who now ascended to heaven, sent us his spirit, is at work within us, promising that one day, guaranteeing that we too will rise again? What does that mean for our lives now? What does it look like to live as if that is true? If the first part of the sermon made us feel depressed, I hope this part leaves us with a sense of urgency and passion and power for what Christ has really done in us. And so first of all, again, if we are going to be raised from the dead, it also means that Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, it means that we can stop skipping church. It means that we can start making time for it in our lives. If Christ has been raised from the dead, there's nothing better we can do on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Saturday evening, whenever it is we go to church. There's nothing more that we could do with our time, nothing better than to spend time with other Christians at the place where we are reminded that Christ has been risen from the dead. The place we're in the middle of our world that is full of hopelessness right now, where we can have hope instilled in us again. The place where we can be reminded of the truth of the resurrection. This is the place where you are strengthened and encouraged. It's not, the, it's not a waste of your time, but these 75 hours each year are probably the best use of your time. That's what our hope for us. So we can quit acting like there's something better to do on Sundays. We can quit saying, oh, what would it be like to sleep in? We can start waking up with, Christ has been risen from the dead. And this morning, I get to be reminded of that. This morning, I get to encounter that again in the word of God. The second thing that comes back is now, instead of throwing our Bibles in the garbage, the only other consistent belief now is to read our Bibles like our lives depend on it. To read our Bibles as if it's not just another book to read every once in a while, or not a book to read through once, maybe, but a book to consume, a book to memorize, a book to text to our friends, a book to mark up, a book to um, just steep in for hours and hours, a book to take a weekend away to just read it and to see what it says, to soak in it to make it a part of our lives, to show up at discipleship community, having actually read the scriptures and ready to discuss and to talk about what's going on, to make time for it in the morning before work or during your lunch break or after work, to make time for your spouse who stays at home to go and have time with the word of God by themselves and watch the kids for a few extra hours. Because this word of God matters. This is now a foundation we can build our lives on. This isn't just something built on lies, but this is built on the most true thing that has ever happened. And if God can raise someone from the dead, perhaps there are a lot of other things he can do as well. And maybe this Bible can tell us a little bit about it. The third thing we can do is we get forgiveness back. Now, instead of walking around in full of guilt and shame all the time, as we talked about in that song a minute ago, we can let that go. Because if Christ has been raised from the dead, it means that you can begin to lean into forgiveness. It means that you don't need to go look for something to sacrifice. It means you don't need to walk around feeling guilt and shame all the, side, all the time, feeling a burden of sin on you. But now it means that you can run to Christ and that he forgives you. It says that if anyone has sinned, let him confess his sins because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It means that isn't a made-up line to make us feel better. It means it's, as true, it's the truest thing that's ever happened, that our sins have been forgiven. That means when you hear that whisper that you're not good enough this week, and you find that temptation to prove yourself to God that you're good enough, you can actually run to the cross instead. You can lean into forgiveness instead. You don't need to go look for something to sacrifice. You don't need to prove your worth to God, but you can run to the cross. You can lean into forgiveness because God is ready to forgive you. If Jesus died in your place and God raised him from the dead, it means that the cross worked. It means that it actually accomplished something on our, ha- on our behalf. And you don't have to live in guilt anymore. 
It also means that you can hold on to hope at your next Christian funeral. It means that you no longer have to grieve in the same way anymore. Now, it doesn't mean that you'll never get sad, right? Because death is always an assault against God's plan for the world. And so there is a sadness. And even Jesus felt that sadness at the friend of his, uh, death of his friend Lazarus. It's okay to weep. It's okay to cry at funerals. But what, he, what he, he's saying here is that we don't have to grieve in the same way anymore. We don't have to grieve as, as if death is the period mark on the end of life. We can grieve because it's not, but not in the way that it's final. We know that resurrection is coming. And so we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. You will see your believing friends and family again. That is not just a cliche for Hallmark cards. That is something true that you can hold on to. That those who died in faith are people that you will see and experience again. And the final thing is that we can pity the haters. Instead of being people most of all to be pitied, you can have confidence in what you believe. Now, this doesn't mean you now go on the attack on social media. Also not a good strategy. And we have workshops where we talk about why that is not a good strategy. But you don't have to be afraid when someone hates on what you believe. You don't have to be afraid when somebody says that the death and resurrection of Christ are made up or a myth. It no longer needs to be you who is pitied, but rather the haters and the trolls, the people who have nothing better to do with their time than to hate on people who are actually living. They are now the people to be pitied. They are now the people in need of mercy. They are now the people in need of our prayers because they're the ones who are missing out on what we've found. And it's our job to now go to them and to share the gospel with them. Again, certain beliefs are like theological dominoes. If you lose one, you lose a lot of other ones as well. But if this is true, and this is true, then all the rest of these are true as well. If you are going to be raised from the dead, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then there should be an urgency to our lives. We should quit skipping church. We should read the Bible like our lives depend on it. We should lean into forgiveness. We should hold on to hope at our next Christian funeral, and we should pity the haters because that's what the resurrection changes for us. I want to ask the same question that I asked last week at the end, which is what do you think about the resurrection? Because what you believe happens when Christ died has everything to do with what you believe happens when you die. And as we just talked about, it has everything to do with what you believe about going to church, it has everything to do with what you believe about reading the Bible, the forgiveness of your sins, hope for those who died in Christ, and confidence in the face of haters. And I want you to look at your life now. Are you living as if the resurrection is true? Or are you living as if it's false? If you think about these five things, the way you read your Bible, the way you go to church, your, your confidence in the face of haters, your, your hope for the world to come, the way you experience forgiveness, is that showing that you believe that you will be raised from the dead and Christ has been raised from the dead? Or is the way that you're living in these five areas showing that you don't believe that you're going to be raised from the dead and you don't believe Christ has been raised from the dead? What do you believe about the resurrection? Begin to live as that if that is true. If you don't believe in the resurrection, by all means, begin to live as if that's true. But if you do, if you believe, and maybe you want to believe today, and you want to go before the Lord and say, Lord, help me in my doubt, begin to live into these other things as well. Because believing in what happens when we die creates an urgency for all those other things as well. Next week, Chuck is going to pick up Paul's argument with a few more things that begin to, that this changes about what happens when we die and how these two things keep coming back together, what happened when Christ died and what happens when we die. And he's going to talk about a few more things that the resurrection means for us. That's where we're going to end this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for meeting us here today. We know that you are good. We know that you love us. 
we believe that you have risen from the grave. That's why we're gathered here this morning. We believe that this is not false. We don't believe that our faith is futile. We don't believe that we're wasting our time. We don't believe that we are of all people most to be pitied. Lord, I pray for those in here this morning who are dealing with doubt, who are working through this themselves. Lord, I pray that you might bring them to the point of believing that you have raised uh, Christ from the dead and that you will raise us also. Help us begin to lean into those other five things as well this morning. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.